This holiday season, discover the true meaning of Christmas in all of us. I'm not really into the holidays. Sorry. Jack Wormby thought he had it all. A big city job, a beautiful wife, and a phone that worked in his car. But his life was missing one thing. I am Santa Talos, here to administer full Christmas. I bring hot change forged in life. It's burning my skin! It's the story of one man, one Bronze Age automaton, and a whole lot of Christmas cheer. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our exploration of invented toys. In the previous episodes, we talked about stuff like the Frisbee, the Jack in the Box, the Slinky, the Hula Hoop. What else do we do? Oh, we did jigsaw puzzles. We did, uh, uh, yeah, Jack in the Box. Uh, a number of, uh, what's the, oh. Um, we can't remember what we talk about on here. Yeah, <laughs> hula hoop, uh, frisbee, uh, a number of different toys. I mean, really, you, you just got to go back in the bag and start digging around to see what we discuss. But today I wanted to start off by talking about one of the most basic toys you could possibly have. You know, when I was a kid, I had lots of favorite toys. I remember being very partial to some branded Jurassic Park action figures. And I actually, I had the car, you oh, know, yeah? like the car that the T-Rex steps on. That wow. was, uh, so there was like a Sam Neill action figure? At oh, the yeah, time? totally. Okay. Sam Neill action figure. He's got the hat on. And he. Uh, the, one of the funny things about the Jurassic Park action figures is that they would come with weapons that they did not possess <laughs> at all in the film. So they've got like an Ellie Sattler action figure, Laura Dern's likeness mm-hmm. with like a grappling hook gun. Like, oh, I don't remember the scene in the movie where she had that. Well, this was, well, this would have, this was the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was... You're a little younger than me, so I was I wasn't at uh, at action figure age at this point anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, maybe so, I was beyond it, but still still going. Well, <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a whole another discussion because ultimately my take is you can get action figures anytime you want during your life because all they are ultimately they're they're deities. They're they're little uh, right. icons that inspire you, and you can you can play with them or uh, just be inspired by them at any point in your life. But. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point in my life, I, they weren't really on my radar. But now I'm excited by the idea of having a, a Jeff Goldblum action figure. <laughs> yeah, what weapon did Jeff Goldblum have? I think maybe he Math. had a he – he, he, he had like a gun that shot a net or something. <laughs> Why would he have that? Hmm. Uh, maybe it was shooting like a, a like a graph for like uh, mapping his, the grids of his uh, parabolas and all that when he's doing his calculations. There is that that theme in action figures, especially where it's like it's not enough that you have the likeness of a person or a creature or an entity to then it's not enough that you can then engage in imagination play with it and mm-hmm. and even and even pose it. I like having a poseable figure. I, I grew up in the you know the era of GI Joes and it was nice to have all those those joints move. Right. But but then there's this level of like nope, it needs some sort of gun. It needs it's something. It's got to have a gun. It's got to have some sort. Of, not only a, a something that looks like a gun, a functional projectile uh, implement that can fire the grappling hook or the net at another action figure. And I think it's largely about so you can have that action moment in the commercial where one figure does something to knock over another. Yes, that that's totally it. 
I think it may also be driven on the supply side sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we figured out how to make this little shooter thing. What action figure can we pair that with? Yes, yeah. Uh, and and we'll come back to this uh, discussion of action figures and, and, and movie and TV properties towards the end of the episode. Right. Uh, but I want to go way simpler than that. Uh, so this has no guns, no moving parts, no likenesses of Sam Neill or Laura Dern. Uh, I, I had lots of favorite toys, but what did I get the most sustained enjoyment out of? I think it's got to be blocks, right? Yeah. Like I spent more time with building blocks than any other kind of toy uh, because, of course, blocks can be anything. So there's like an infinite amount of play that you can do with them, though I still remember the pain of trying to build with blocks in a room completely covered in soft carpet. That way <laughs> lies death. Yeah. You know, like you, you build a tower, but then you smite its ruin on the carpeted stairs because it, it it's just unstable. It's true. Yeah, I, I also have a lot of fond memories of playing with the, this one set of standard wooden blocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, most of them were standard, but I also had some specialty pieces. I was especially pleased with these uh, these double arches that you could use. Oh, yeah. That could be used to make a bridge, or you could put them together to make like a, a circular entrance uh, in something. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of my imagination play with them was based on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Uh, those scenes where Indiana Jones and others are going into these you know, um, you know ridiculously unrealistic tomb spaces, these uh-huh. big, uh, you know, antechambers and uh, and so forth. And, you know, I, I just had to reconstruct those and, um, and send some G.I. Joes down there. I think blocks are very interesting as toys because building with blocks is a kind of play that combines the ultimate in freedom and the ultimate in constraint, right? It has like no established goals, rules, no winning conditions, and thus it's not really a game. And yet it has extremely tight and non-negotiable constraints based in physics and materials. And so it's a very different kind of play than a lot of the imagination play that you would do where, mm-hmm. you know, you might have action figures there where, uh, you, you know, your action figure play is just not very limited by physics usually. A lot of it's just like happening in the imagination with the action figure as a prop. Mm-hmm. A different thing is going on with the blocks. Like you're trying to stack them on top of each other. You're trying to get them to behave, to like stand up in a certain way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you have like this this basic physical enterprise at the heart of your, your play, no matter how much imagination you then put on top of that. Yeah, so asking the question when toy blocks were invented, obviously we don't know that. Uh, it seems that people have been using various kinds of homemade toy building materials for centuries, maybe even thousands of years, but we just frankly don't know when it began. Uh, so I was reading a great article on the history of Blox's tools uh, for learning and as toys by an author named Karen Hewitt, who is a, a scholar of education. Um, she's a toy designer and she has curated museum ex- exhibitions on the history of educational toys. Uh, this article was called Blocks as a Tool for Learning, a Historical and Contemporary Perspective, published in the journal Young Children in 2001. And so um, Hewitt begins by observing that building-based play among children probably predates dedicated block toys because you can even watch children today improvise with building-based play using natural materials like rocks and sticks or construct uh, – or like constructed or artificial materials often discarded by adults, you know, like construction scrap, containers, boxes. I remember getting so much enjoyment out of empty boxes when I was young. Oh, yeah. yeah. Empty boxes are, are loads of fun. And on top of that, of course, you know, the, the, the children of builders – 
will inevitably not only play with the d debris left over from building, but they will imitate the building activity that they see in the parents. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, just watching the way kids pick up things that are not specifically intended as toy building materials and then turn them into toy building materials – that makes it pretty clear that construction play probably long predates having dedicated toy blocks. Uh, I mean, even you can think about sandcastles. I wonder oh, yeah. how long have people been making sandcastles? Were, you know, Neolithic peoples making sandcastles? It's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the sandcastles, just playing in the sand, digging in the sand, there's just something irresistible about it. Yeah. So I think it's clear that building blocks are not a toy that invents a fundamentally new kind of play the way, say, a slinky or a jack-in-the-box would. There's no way to play with a slinky before the slinky existed. There's no way to play with the jack-in-the-box jack before that existed. But you could basically have blocks in nature, you know, rocks, sticks, all that kind of stuff. Rather, I think toy blocks offer a clean, safe, and convenient way of facilitating the kind of construction play that children pick up naturally without any prompting whenever random materials materials are available. Though I do have a question about this, and I couldn't find an answer to this. Does Homo sapiens have a building instinct that would manifest even without any exposure to a culture of construction and artificial structures? Or do children need to see artificial structures and witness adults building things in order to get the urge to build as play? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to, I mean, almost an impossible one to investigate. You yeah. Know, it, it's like uh, studying unlanguaged children. You have to, uh, you have to, it, it would require, a, you know, an act of extreme deprivation uh, in, in order to study what it would be like. Uh -huh. It's like to deny a child access to like blocks or the idea of blocks, uh -huh. to the idea of play, uh, you know, that's, just something that's uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to study. I'm not suggesting we try it. No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so Hewitt points out that thinkers have long connected children's orientation toward construction-based play with learning and the needs of a developing brain. Uh, she mentions Plato, uh, Comenius, uh, Pestalozzi, and Jean Piaget. And apparently uh, this even came up with the English Enlightenment philosopher John Locke in 1693 in a treatise called Some Thoughts Concerning Education. John Locke wrote, quote, The chief art is to make all that children have to do, sport and play, too. Learning anything they should be taught might be made as much a recreation to their play as their play is to their learning. Ah. So specifically, Locke here points to children's play with what we now know today as alphabet blocks. They existed at the time, too. They, they didn't – I don't think they were being like mass manufactured at the time. Mm -hmm. There weren't like, you know, big toy companies putting these out. But some kids just had blocks they were playing with that had letters inscribed on them. This reminds me of the origins of the jigsaw puzzle or more specifically the um, the dissected map that yeah. we discussed in the last episode, something that began as not even a mass-reduced toy but uh, like an educational aid. Yes, and this would have been not always as fully accepted and intuitive as it is to us today. Like, So Locke's actually trying to make a case for using a child's natural tendency towards play as a means of education. Like, 
you know, he's saying if the, if the child automatically wants to play with alphabet blocks, it is no chore and thus the child better learns the alphabet. And to put this in context, a lot of the prevailing sentiment about childhood education in late 17th century England would have focused on like hard work and discipline through threats of punishment. And, uh, and Locke in, instead emphasized that children could learn through play and enjoyment. And uh, Hewitt suggests that this view contributed to a sort of reevaluation of toys with more adults coming to see them uh, – to see toys less as like sinful icons of idleness and more as tools for informing and exercising a developing mind, something that's actually a social good and useful. I'm not sure if the same would apply to uh, Laura Dern's grappling hook gun, but I, I think you could definitely make the case with building blocks. Yes. Uh, so Hewitt writes that in the mid to late 19th century, some manufacturers in Europe and the U.S. actually then began to mass produce building block toys. Uh, and this could often be kind of a side business of something like – Imagine you've got a woodworking company and you're cutting wood for, you know, whatever it is that you're mainly selling. You tend to have a lot of small scraps of wood left over. Could you actually turn those for a profit? Could you shape them into building blocks and make money off of what would otherwise be a waste product? And uh, Hewitt writes that since the mid-19th century, there have been three main avenues linking learning and play with respect to toy blocks. So the first one's what we're already talking about. It's building itself. It's learning about basic physics and material properties with hands-on building experience. Uh, this is, of course, one of the most important parts of education. Sometimes it gets underemphasized when we think about education because it's not a technical subject you really learn in school. It's something that children just have to learn intuitively with hands-on experience in the world. Absolutely. It just allows for further ex experimentation with uh, the natural properties of reality. Sure. Uh, and then, okay, so the second thing is surfaces of blocks as a place to represent symbols like letters, numbers, words. Uh, of course, we already talked about the example of alphabet blocks and thus using the blocks as a way of learning how to manipulate those symbols. Like uh, Hewitt says that this pairing of abstract symbols with blocks really exploded in the mid-1800s. And it uh, it seems like a very relevant type of learning today, like allowing the child to physically move symbols around in real space. This sort of is a, is a physical model of the way we metaphorically move symbols around in mental space to manipulate them. Yeah, basically engaging our, you know, the, our, the, the visual processes of our brain as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 these these are still tremendously uh, helpful. You see them sometimes uh, to aid in uh, acquisition of foreign languages, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering, did you ever, when you were a kid, use like those um, sort of balancing scale games with physical objects to learn algebra? Like so if you're trying to balance two sides of an equation in math? Uh, no, no. I, I feel like my math education was very based in just you know, rote memorization of things. Oh, no. Uh, you know, memorizing tables, uh, learning tricks. And so I really, with a, with a second grader uh, who's going through like modern math education, mm -hmm. it's been very interesting to see just this seemingly drastic different approach to learning how numbers work and uh, and how quantities compare to each other. It's uh, it, it, At times, it's difficult for me to even uh, help him with it because I feel like our, our math educations are so different. Uh -huh. uh, but, but 
the, the way they're teaching him, I think, is, is far superior to what I had. Oh, you're not going to be one of those adults complaining that kids aren't learning stuff the same way you learned it? <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm, thank goodness they're learning it a different way because the way I yeah. learned it, I feel like, did not give me a true appreciation for mathematics. Yeah. I, f- I feel much the same way, but I think that's such a funny impulse people have, isn't it? Like, it's a, they're, they're not learning it the way I did. The way I did has <laughs> got to be superior somehow. They're not learning it poorly like I did. <laughs> I will not stand for it. Uh, no, I, I want my kid to be able to, to actually think about numbers in ways that have uh, eluded me uh, my whole life. Yeah. And then uh, there's one third main way that Hewitt mentions that blocks have been linked with learning, and that's uh, the transmission of cultural heritage through blocks. Mm -hmm. An example here would be, quote, building a model of an important architectural structure and through this process learning architectural styles. Uh, In fact, an example I was just thinking of was the original Lincoln Logs. You know, these were – uh, created by uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's son. Really? I can't, I can't remember his first name. Uh, but one, one of the sons of Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, yeah, he, he got a Lincoln Log business going. And one of the original things that you were supposed to do with Lincoln Logs, like you got these instructions on how to build Abraham Lincoln's log cabin. Huh. Yeah, Lincoln Logs. Uh, OK, I'll, I'll acknowledge that Lincoln Logs do succeed as an educational toy in, in, in educating you in the, the basic way that a log cabin is constructed. Uh-huh. But that's pretty much it. I always found them to be a, a very boring toy. Like you, <laughs> you, you play with them once and you're like, oh, yeah, that's okay. That's all I can do with this. Uh, I'm going to go build something out of a block that allows me to engage my mind a bit more. I was reading an old New York Times article in uh, about blocks by the Canadian-American architect and uh, UPenn professor Vitold Rybczynski, and his comment about Lincoln Logs was, uh, it was something like, well, at least they smelled good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were wooden. I mean, I don't hate Lincoln Logs, but I just, they never really resonated with me. Uh-huh. But they, they certainly survived due to that. Uh, in, in I think the first episode we did on toys, we talked about this idea that toys have a 20-year cycle, mm-hmm. that you, you, you have a certain ch- uh, toy as a child, and then 20 years later, you know, give or take, uh, if you have children or there are children in your life at all, you're likely to give that toy anew if it's still on the market, still available. Uh-huh. And Lincoln Logs are exactly like that. My, my, my son received Lincoln Logs from members of the family uh, just because of that nostalgia. And how do they smell? I smell fine, and you can still build a little cabin out of it and then yeah. uh, set them aside to go do something more fun. <laughs> Uh, but, of course, uh, another thing Hewitt points out is that there are plenty of cases of blurring of the lines between these categories, right? Because, uh, for example, a thing that was, I think, very common in the, in the 19th century was like you, you'd have a set of blocks that you sold as a as a set that would represent elements of Bible stories. Hmm. And this combines using the blocks themselves as a representation space for symbols or referring to things somewhere else, but then also transmitting cultural heritage through the Bible story aspect. I don't think I've ever seen this. Would it have been essentially, it wasn't sequential art, right? It wasn't. Uh, I think there was some sequential okay. art like that, uh, like Bible story sequential art. Then I think it was also like, you know, build build Noah's Ark or oh, something. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good fit. Uh, Noah's Ark is the, the most child-friendly portion of uh, pretty much the whole Bible. So 
Or do they have blocks of all the other people on the earth getting drowned to death? No, no, uh, we just focus on the animals. That's, <laughs> right. that's the main thing. Uh, so she goes into the history of a lot of individual block manufacturers and their businesses. I, I decided I'm not going to go into all that here just to touch on a couple more broad issues. Uh, though it is actually interesting and this paper is worth looking up and, and giving a read if you want to go deeper on just like what some of these manufacturers were doing individually. But um, uh, Hewitt points out that despite the attempts to use blocks for education in numbers and letters and so forth, children most often play with blocks in terms of pure form. Like that when you actually watch the way children in, engage with blocks, most of the time, they ignore the symbolic representations. Mm -hmm. They they ignore the the letters on the alphabet blocks, and instead they use them to build. They build little towers and little cities. Usually, the form and the physical base of construction play seems more relevant to the child's mind than the abstract content does. I don't know how that squares with your experience, but yeah, it, I would I would say so. Yeah. It does with mine. Yeah. Like if I had the Bible blocks, I think I would just be trying to build like an Indiana Jones temple out of them. Yeah. I, I think that was my experience with, with alphabet blocks as, as a kid. Uh -huh. I would use them to a certain extent to build with, but they didn't, they didn't provide as much flexibility in terms of what you ultimately built uh, compared to an actual block set that had varying sizes. There's only so much you can do with identical cubes. Mm -hmm. Uh, likewise, I remember we were gifted a, a very nice set of wooden alphabet blocks uh, and character blocks uh, of when uh, my son came into our life because uh, they were they, they would have Mandarin characters on them, mm, cool. uh, which was very cool. And you know, you get kind of excited about ah, oh, yes, the learning tool that it, that are that is that is this block set. Uh, but then you know, ultimately, the kid's not that interested in them and just wants to do uh, you know age appropriate <laughs> things with them, which uh -huh. I guess he was like like one one and a half at that point. And, you know, he just wants to knock them over or throw them. Uh, he doesn't want to actually build and, and much less think about the characters all that much. Oh, but that's actually interesting because another thing Hewitt talks about, she, she makes a point about the importance of the tearing down aspect of block play. Oh, yes. Uh, she says this is a crucial element that's underemphasized in some of the, you know, pedagogical theory or maybe underappreciated by even some parents. Uh, there's a section where she says, quote, the destructive or deconstructive activity characteristic of block play, an integral part of this activity, makes some adults uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> However, as in all learning, we cannot understand until we take apart, examine and rebuild. Um, so, you know, she's making a point that a lot of parents might look at their child's tendency to want to, like, knock over a tower of blocks and smash it and everything. And you say, oh, no, is my child some kind of, you know, little King Kong, a little oh, Godzilla? Yeah. Are they just pure destructive impulse? But she's suggesting, no, this this is also an important part of learning. It's not something to be afraid of. No, yeah, not at all. But, I mean, it can it can be frustrating. I've been frustrated with it when when, when uh, my, my son was, was much younger, mm -hmm. you know, because you want you want to engage with them. You want to play with them. You want to play blocks with with your your, your child. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, you're like, let's build something together. And then the kid maybe is not that much into building or is not very good at it. But then wants to destroy it at every level of construction. Uh, <laughs> or sometimes you encounter it too, where you have differing age groups and children. And so you have like the kid who's old enough to really want to build stuff, mm -hmm. be it with blocks or a sandcastle or what have you. But the younger kid just wants to Godzilla the heck out of that sand city. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and you just have to realize that that is 
that I mean that's kind of how they they learn. They're at a, a dissection stage of uh, of architecture. Sure, like both phases are important. Yeah, they're, they're all about destroying new buildings. Uh, Einstein's into new button. <laughs> you know, one last thing that was in this paper that I just point out because it's funny is that there's a part where she talks. This again, this was published in 2001, and she talks about the sort of recent development of digital construction environments, which are like computer games that are marketed as an alternative to physical blocks. And mm. the way she writes about it, it seems like she's a little bit skeptical of that these would, you know, replace physical blocks. Because, you know, if you're, it's 2001, you're thinking, what? Kids want to play with their hands. Why would you right. have digital 3D blocks? But then I was thinking, like, wait a minute, Minecraft. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of examples of it. Um, but I, too, am skeptical because, yeah, there is something about the, the physical act of, mm -hmm. of building. And even if you have great physics in a virtual setting, which many of these games do, sure, uh, it, there's nothing like having the actual block there. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. You've got to have the physical objects there, especially for younger kids, I mm -hmm. think. Maybe or, it's once you get older that you can, like, abstract that level of play out to a you know, an imagined space. Or to come back to the jack-in-the-box, uh -huh. uh, let's not discount the alarming noise of a an epic wooden block tower falling onto so the kitchen floor. I love you that. Know? And I, I think that also is an important part of the, the experience. Another disadvantage of playing on carpeted floor, right? Yeah. So, the, so it's harder to build because the floor is less stable, but also when it finally falls over, you don't even get the clatter. Yeah, you don't scare everybody in the house and the, the dog and the cat to boot. Horrible. <laughs> this is my PSA for this episode. Find a place with solid, hard floors for your children to play with blocks on. <laughs> Don't make them play on carpet. Yes. All right, it's time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more invention about toys. Hey, everybody. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Audible Originals are stories created exclusively for audio, including documentaries, exclusive audiobooks, and scripted shows that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. You'll finish more stories when you listen with Audible and always be a part of the conversation. With the convenient Audible app, which I use, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device, mobile, Alexa-enabled, Bluetooth, and more. Listen at the gym, while shopping, in the car, while traveling. Anytime you can't read, you can listen with Audible. Audible members get more than ever before. Every month, you can choose one audiobook regardless of price, as well as two Audible originals from a fresh selection. Members stay motivated and inspired with unlimited access to exclusive guided fitness and meditation programs. You can sign up for free updates from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post delivered daily to the app. And get this, Audible members can easily exchange any title they don't love at any time. Members keep their library of listens forever, even if they cancel. So start a 30-day trial and choose one audiobook plus two Audible Originals absolutely free. Uh, this is a, a great thing. I actually I use the Audible app all the time in, in my personal life. Uh, I was just traveling the other day. I was on an airplane and I was listening to the old classic audiobook of uh, of Lord of the Rings. Uh, oh. I was in the two towers listening to the Rob Inglis reading. I don't know if there are others, but that one's great. You know, he like sings all the songs. It's one 
wonderful. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a great one to check out if you want to roam Middle Earth. I, I love the way he sings the Tom Bombadil song. So good. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, we, uh, we're super into The NeverEnding Story right now, uh-huh. uh, which uh, you will also find on Audible. And, and this is important, too, because it will come up in the next section that we're going to discuss on the show. Oh, really? Well, I'm excited for that. Uh, but so, yeah, you, the listener, start listening. Get Audible. Start with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash invention or text invention to 500-500. Again, that's audible.com slash invention or text invention to 500-500. All right, we're back. So we just talked about traditional blocks, wooden blocks, a little mm-hmm. bit of uh, uh, you know, log cabin action in there, some, uh, some alphabet blocks as well. But I think we all know that there is sort of a final form of blocks <laughs> in principle, you know, like how the Power Rangers continually morph up into bigger and better robots. Mm-hmm. The ultimate robot that they could achieve, I think, would have to be the Lego. Absolutely. Legos. Uh, these were a huge part of my childhood growing up in the 80s and 90s. These interlocking plastic bricks and the various building accessories that, that come with them allow you to construct everything from castles to helicopters to spaceships. And uh, I, I would generally build what the instructions told me to. You know, I'd follow the instructions once. Mm-hmm. Then I'd throw the directions away, and then I would just free build whatever I wanted, usually more castles, helicopters, and spaceships, but, you know, of my, my own design. Uh-huh. Uh, for instance, I remember watching the 1983 helicopter film Blue Thunder <laughs> at what was almost certainly, uh, you know, far too young an age for an R-rated action film. Uh-huh. And I became obsessed with the two choppers in the film. It was a police attack chopper piloted by Roy Scheider. Oh, from Jaws. Yeah. And then the Hughes 500 chopper piloted by uh, evil test pilot Malcolm McDowell of, of course, uh, you know, Caligula and a Clockwork Orange fame. <laughs> How have I never seen this? <laughs> and then, oh... Uh, I should also point out uh, Daniel Stern also had a role playing a voyeuristic creep, of course. Of course. what Man, he was really getting typecast as creeps in the like late 80s period. Yeah. Or I guess this would have been earlier. In the, so like how did he bust out of creep phase and become the narrator of the Wonder Years? Well, uh, maybe like a sight unseen casting because <laughs> he has a great creep look uh-huh. and – plays a fantastic creep. I mean, why, you know, why try and get away from what works? And uh, yeah, Daniel Stern is is a natural. You just, it's that, that, that six-pack life that he's living. <laughs> okay. But so this movie got you building Lego helicopters. Yeah. And and going back to our, our destructive aspect of play, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite things to do was to, was to build the, the two Blue Thunder helicopters and have them duel. And then, uh, you know, they, they then have one of them crash. And that's the great thing about a Lego constructed vehicle is when it crashes, uh, it breaks into pieces. Mm-hmm. You have this believable, uh, you know, destruction. And then you can perhaps have the little pilot have to put that chopper back together so that he can get back in the sky mm-hmm. and uh, defeat Malcolm McDowell once and for all. Wow. Uh, again, destruction, an important part of play. Yeah. Uh, like going back to blocks real quick, I remember one thing that I would do a lot with my wooden blocks was build a wall and then I had a battery power GI Joe tank mm-hmm. that would just it would just basically just move forward on these cool tracks uh-huh. and just have that drive into the wall and see see if I could build a wall strong enough to keep 
the tank from plowing through it, and then also oh. like figure out how to make the tank approach the wall so as to bust through. I think I did something almost exactly like this with yeah. a with a remote control car. Yeah, yeah, trying to build something that it like couldn't get through. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, say what you will about war toys, and we'll have something to say about that in a minute. Uh, like a nice remote control, uh, remote control, or just powered tank toy or mm-hmm. vehicle toy. It's great to send it at a, at a wall of blocks. So uh, Legos, fast forward 20 years via the 20-year the rule we've been talking about, and I have introduced my own son to the joy of Legos, and he's into them big time. He's, he's more obsessed with instructions than I was, but he does some free construction as well. He likes to make creatures out of them, and most recently he made a Falcor from The NeverEnding Story. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he also loves the Harry Potter kits, especially the ones that have creatures in them. Mm-hmm. Um, also some of the Lego dinosaur kits he really digs. Uh, and and I should also drive home that stepping on Legos is still absolutely no fun, Oof. but an but an important part of the experience. <laughs> so we've got to have the backstory of the Lego, right? Where does this wonderful, delightful toy come from? Well, it it ties in nicely with the history of building blocks uh, themselves, because of course you cannot have Lego building blocks without. All the, all the forms that came before, especially just basic wooden blocks. Mm-hmm. And it does begin in a carpenter shop with pretty much the same scenario we were talking about earlier, where a carpenter might construct toys out of uh, you know, leftover materials, hmm. etc. And uh, in this particular master carpenter and joiner was a, a man by the name of Ole Kirk uh, Christensen, who worked in the village of Billund, Denmark. So he opened his shop in 1932, selling mostly household wooden goods like ladders and things. But he also sold some toys on the side. Uh, But the toys became increasingly important to his business. Mm -hmm. In 1934, uh, the company ends up adopting the name Lego from the Danish leggot, which means play well. And by accident, uh, Lego also means I put together in Latin, apparently. And then in uh, 1935, they marketed uh, a wooden duck toy. They had a construction game, that sort of thing. Uh, And they just kept continually building on this. In 1946, the company bought a plastic injection molding machine. And uh, by 1949, the company was putting out 200 different plastic and wooden toys, uh, mostly, uh, I understand, you know, for sale in Denmark. Uh, And one of the, the toys that they put out were automatic binding bricks. Hmm. These were interlocking bricks made out of plastic. And if you look at pictures of them, there are pictures of them available on the in the history section of Lego's website. You'll see that they they mostly resemble Lego the Lego blocks of today with some you know some noticeable differences, but the the basic design is there, the little cylindrical uh, bits on the top that allow them to interlock. You know, it's funny. I would think with Legos that they must actually have some pretty tight design parameters to to fit as well as they do. You know, they don't have, like, parts that, like, lock in place with any moving mechanisms, Mm -hmm. right? So they just have to lock in place by pure rigid shape alone. And this involves, like, them being just, like, the the pegs on the top fitting into the, the things on the bottom just well enough that they stay together, but, you know, not so tightly that it's tough to put them together or tough to put the, pull them apart. Right. Yeah. They, they, have, to, they have to work. And they, they apparently work pretty hard experimenting with them over the years to, to really get the, the fit, uh, you know, tight and dependable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were experimenting with the plastic and the plastic construction. They, they were not the first interlocking block or, or brick, however. Uh, the key predecessor to all this would have been, uh, uh, I was reading, the, the Kitty 
Speedcraft self-locking building brick, which was invented by Hillary Fisher Page, who lived 1904 through 1957. But uh, the automatic uh, binding bricks of Lego were, were the immediate predecessor to the Lego blocks we know today. They were only sold in Denmark at first, and then in 1953, they got a new name. Lego Merston or Lego Bricks, and they steadily expanded from there, hitting the U.S. and Canada in 61. They go from a regional toy uh, to an international success. Now, one thing I was thinking about regarding Lego and my own history of playing with Lego Blue Thunder toys uh-huh. at choppers blowing each other out of the sky, obviously there was never an actual Blue Thunder movie tie-in Lego kit. Uh-huh. Uh, I know it's hard to imagine a time when there were not a million Lego movie tie-ins on the shelf, uh, but I started thinking about it, and I was like, oh, you know, um, I don't know that I ever saw, say, an Apache helicopter Lego or any kind of a military helicopter Lego or a tank or, uh, or uh, you know, anything of that matter. I mean, you'll see some science fiction, um, you know, battle-type uh, stuff, some uh-huh. fantasy stuff, and uh, to a certain extent medieval weaponry with the castles. But you don't really see any war toys, despite the fact that there would there would clearly be a market for that. Sure. If you if say Lego were to put out Lego models of say you know stealth fighter, stealth bomber, mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, you know the the Osprey, whatever the, uh, the the military aircraft happens to be, they're neat planes. They would make neat kits, right? Seems like a no brainer. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, looking into this and. Uh, a little bit more, and I, I ran across an excerpt from a 2010 progress report that really drives home some of the key decision-making that goes on here. And I do think this does get into the the idea of destructive play, constructive play, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lego posts these kind of reports uh, uh, every year, addressing a variety of topics that you might expect a major toy manufacturer to tackle, including social and environmental issues on top of, you know, more business-level stuff. Mm -hmm. And this particular progress report spelled out their key philosophy on weapons and war in their toys. And so I just want to read this. Again, this is coming directly from Lego, so just bear in mind you're hearing, like, corporate messaging here. Right. But I think it does reveal a lot. Quote, a large number of Lego minifigures use weapons and are, assumedly, regularly being charged by each other's weapons as part of children's role play. In the Lego group, we acknowledge that conflict in play is especially prevalent among four- to nine-year-old boys. An inner drive and a need to experiment with their own aggressive feelings in order to learn about other people's aggressions exists in most children. This, in turn, enables them to handle and recognize conflict in non-play scenarios. As such, the Lego group sees conflict play as perfectly acceptable and an integral part of children's development. We also acknowledge children's well-proven ability to tell play from reality. However, to make sure to maintain the right balance between play and conflict, we have adhered to a set of unwritten rules for several years. In 2010, we have formalized these rules in a guideline for the use of conflict and weapons in Lego products. The basic aim is to avoid realistic weapons and military equipment that children may recognize from hot spots around the world and to refrain from showing violent or frightening situations when communicating about Lego products. At the same time, the purpose is for the Lego brand not to be associated with issues that glorify conflicts and unethical or harmful behavior. So the idea is that they are comfortable with allowing conflict conflict play, including, you know, 
uh, weapons and stuff in, say, uh, historical settings or fantasy settings or sci-fi settings, but not having like guns that you would recognize on, you know, being used in violence and armed conflict today. Correct. Yeah. And uh, I looked around at some of the more recent reports to see if mm-hmm. they'd uh, they had a more recent uh, voicing of this philosophy, and mm-hmm. I was not able to come across it. It might exist out there. Lego has a you know puts out a lot of communication, mm-hmm. uh, but but it seems to be this this seems to be the standard they're still operating by, hmm. uh, and and I and I think that's I, I acknowledge that this this makes sense for a especially for a an international. Uh, company, you know, yeah. that that doesn't uh, that isn't say just situated in the United States, uh, for instance. Say, for instance, Lego put out a Predator drone kit. Right, like that would be that would be awful because yeah. the, the the context would be different. Uh, in obviously in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and and, uh, and and arguably like this this particular kit, if it were to exist, would bring a lot of uh, ethical baggage with it. Uh, that you wouldn't necessarily want to inflict upon a, a child who just wants to engage in the kind of play we're discussing here. Yeah. Th- this has got me thinking. I think conf- conflict play and uh, violence in play could be something we come back to and do an episode on and stuff to blow your mind. Because it's something that, again, it's kind of like with uh, destructive play with blocks, you know, mm-hmm. like knocking down towers and stuff. It's the kind of thing that I can totally understand why parents would look at it. Uh, and say like this can't be healthy. Something something's wrong here. And yet, you know, obviously, millions of people around the world grow up playing at games in which the children pretend to kill each other. Yeah. And you know, use toy guns and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't necessarily translate to you know real aggressive or violent behavior in adults. Maybe in some cases it does, but it doesn't appear to uh, to necessarily lead to that conclusion. So I wonder what the actual research says about that. Yeah, it would be fun to do a deeper dive in it because on another level, what children are doing in imagination play is they're making up stories, telling stories, and retelling stories. Yeah. Uh, for instance, if you're if you're playing with uh, – there is a, a particular Lego kit – uh, that is uh, it's a small one, and it's just about one of the showdowns between Harry Potter and Voldemort, mm-hmm. uh, which is a battle, which is a fight between a um, a murderous villain and uh, and the hero of the tale, uh-huh. uh, which of course is central to it's the kind of conflict you have in so many myths, so many legends, so many important stories. Uh, and so, you know, conflict play to a certain extent is about embracing this aspect of our, our narratives. Yeah, it seems to me impossible that you could like remove a child's desire to explore themes of conflict in their play and in their imagination. Uh, I guess the question is just like what types of physical toys and models actually – I don't know, would drive development in unhealthy directions. I, I, I don't know if we actually have any answers about that. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, a whole other issue, of course, is gun, uh, toy guns, you know. Yeah. And I had uh, toy guns when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had some very realistic looking, like you would just have a water gun that just looks like a straight up Uzi. Black yeah. and everything, you know, and not, not brightly colored so that it's obvious. Uh, and nowadays, like we've, we've, you know, for a few different reasons, we've we've not let uh, our son play with um, with toy guns. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, he's into Harry Potter. He has the wands, mm-hmm. and so he'll go over to play with a friend, and they're just shooting straight um, death curses it, at yeah, each it's other. Just a gun, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's like they're treating it kind of like a gun, and they're they are flinging um, forbidden curses. What are they called? The 
The, I don't know. Uh, anyway, the, the the bad curses you're not supposed to use. The death curses, the crucio curses. Okay. Yeah, we were. Oh, going, that's the pain one, right? Yeah. yeah. Like we were. In fact, he was dressed as uh, as Harry Potter when we were trick or treating. We went past a house, and he was like, "Oh, uh, we should go to that one." And I'm like, "I don't think that one's open. Uh, they don't have their lights on. They don't have any candy." And he just points his wand at the house and says, uh, "Incendio." <laughs> <laughs> Very coldly, I was like, "Like man, man, that's that's cold." Oh, all right, but, uh, but brutal. Back, <laughs> back to Legos. Uh, another interesting angle that I came across uh, regarding uh, Legos uh, has to do with what these blocks are constructed out of. Sure. And, of course, they are made out of plastic. Uh, I was reading a 2018 New York Times article by Stanley Reed titled, Lego Wants to Completely Remake Its Toy Bricks Without Anyone Noticing. Now, that title gives pretty much everything away. There's no mystery what that article is about. But the main point is that Lego wants to eliminate its dependence on petroleum-based plastics and build its toys entirely from plant-based or recycled materials by 2030. And and this is quite a challenge because the Lego block, which hopefully everyone listening has some familiarity with it, like these are durable blocks. Yeah. They, they, They stand the test of time. I'm able to use blocks from my childhood and build things with my my son using new blocks, and you can't really tell the difference mm-hmm. unless it's you know unless a block has been chewed on by a dog or something. Uh, they hold up really well. They hold their color. Uh, they're able to dependently inter- interlock with each other. They can be stepped on. They can go through the wash. You name it. But at the end of the day, they are plastic products that are made from petroleum. And so Lego has been eyeing plant fibers, recycled bottles, uh, uh, and they want to they, they get away from that petroleum-based origin. Namely, they want to get away from ABS plastic, uh, which they've depended on. This is the kind of plastic you find in computer keys and in uh, many mobile phone cases. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's slightly elastic. And it has a polished surface, so it looks nice. Mm-hmm. Reed, uh, Reed points out in this article that at the time of its publication, 2018, Lego had already experimented with something like 200 different alternatives to ABS plastic. And at that point, nothing had really worked. So, so uh, a particular solution might be too brittle. It might break. And if it broke, in some cases, it might break into sharpened pieces, oh. which is no good for a children's toy. Right. In other cases, it might be aesthetic. The colors wouldn't look right, etc. So the quest continues uh, at Lego, apparently, to, to find a proper uh, ABS plastic substitute, something that is more sustainable, that is less dependent on petroleum. Uh, but it is another interesting thing to think about when it comes to toys, the toys that we make, the toys that we have as part of our childhood and then recreate again and share with children in our lives is that they you know, they are made out of materials. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we've talked a lot about older toys that are made out of wood and so forth, but so many of our toys in the modern age are made out of plastic. Well, yeah, I mean, whatever kind of like large scale or m- m- maybe environmental downsides you might point to, I mean, it's, it's clear why plastic is so dominant in the market. I mean, it has undeniable material benefits for especially the kinds of uses you want in a children's toy. Mm-hmm. It's easy to form and to different shapes and mass produce like that. It's relatively safe. Yeah, it it makes it it really has made Lego possible. Yeah. Like you go back to that woodworker's origin, uh, it, it was it was not really possible to make a, an interlocking brick that works as well uh, as a as a plastic brick with with wood materials. Oh man, yeah. Trying to imagine wooden Legos. I wonder if somebody's out there doing that. If that's like somebody's uh, 
you know, passion craft. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, I could be completely wrong here, but I'm, I'm guessing you could make some form of metal Lego, but that also doesn't sound like a great idea. Man, you think stepping on the plastic ones yeah. are bad. <laughs> Wait till you step on the yeah the the steel the steel Lego. All right, we're going to move on to another toy here. This next one is not going to be as as much of an in depth discussion, uh, but I decided to uh, look into the origin of a toy that I don't know if anyone feel anybody feels particularly um, strongly about in a like a positive manner. But I'm talking about the symbol banging monkey. <laughs> that mechanical. Is that a toy? It, yeah, I mean, yeah, I it guess is, it's a toy. It is a sure. toy. It is. It, if the Jack in the Box is a toy, then the symbol banging monkey is. I think of it as a prop in a horror film. Yeah, it's mainly what it does these days. Uh huh. So I'm sure everyone's familiar with it. It is a a chimpanzee, generally in a setting or squatting position. It is wearing some sort of baby clothing, generally. Creepy. It it has a pair of symbols which it crashes together over and over again mechanically. Uh-huh. Sometimes there's, you know, there's movement to the eyes and to the, like, the, the teeth. And its eyes generally have this kind of like red-rimmed appearance to them that makes it look like it is completely insane. It has the devil inside it, yes. Yes. Uh, so I was looking into this, like, where did this come from? And uh, basically it seems to go back to the idea of organ grinders. Oh, okay. Um, where yeah. you'd have some, you know, somebody, a street musician, essentially, with a performing monkey that may be dressed in small clothing, you know, doll clothing or children's clothing, maybe brandishing some sort of an instrument. Mm-hmm. It's all about amusing people and getting them to give you some money, uh, you know, for the amusement. Mm-hmm. And then this would be the mechanical version of it. And I've seen it traced back to the musical Jolly Chimp created by the Japanese company uh, Dashin CK in the 1950s. But then with additional versions popping up in Japan as well and making their way to the U.S. and other markets, uh, again, with a number of different names. But generally revolving around the fact that you have a clashing mechanical noise and the likeness of a chimp. And indeed, especially with those reddened eyes, they they often provoke a sense of uneasiness. Uh, They summon both the spirit of the bestial chimp and uh, the idea of just mindless, uh, uh, you know, automated behavior. Right. There's not a lot of variation. The, The chimp is not a music box. It is not playing a song. It is just clashing cymbals. And uh, and it, it has shown up in a number of different horror properties. The best example is probably this the 1980 short story by Stephen King titled The Monkey. I remember this one. Yeah, the, the basic idea here is that there's this cursed toy symbol monkey, and every time it clashes its symbols, somebody dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. Uh, it was – does the – Climax involve somebody like trying to go out on a lake to throw it in the bottom or yes. something. Yeah, yeah, trying to get away from it, but without without raising the suspicions of the monkey. Uh-huh. Um, this this story again came out in 1980. It was published in a magazine called Gallery, which I believe was some sort of fine art magazine. <laughs> okay, no, I'm kidding. It was a, a skin oh. magazine. Oh, uh, I see. But most of us probably most of us probably know it from a revised version that was f- featured in 1985 Skeleton Crew, which was one of Stephen King's you know, great uh, short story collections of the day. Mm-hmm. Another uh, source that some uh, some people may be remember, remembering the story from, a 1984 film titled The Devil's Gift, which tells the exact, exact pretty much exactly the same story as the King 
uh, short story, but without any attribution to Stephen King. And most of us know it from the MST3K Rift Merlin Shop of Mystical Wonders. Oh, I remember that. It features an edited down uh, cut of this film. That like uh, it ends up like catching people on fire and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's terrible, but also good and also creepy. There's something about this monkey that is legitimately creepy. And I should also point out Stephen King's Skeleton Crew, first edition and many editions that came out afterwards, that collection had the symbol-banging monkey on the cover. Yep. And that's all I've got on the symbol-banging monkey. <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe— Not a deep story. <laughs> not a deep story. Maybe somewhere out there in the world we have listeners who know a deeper tale of the monkey— and uh, perhaps you'll even dare to share it with us, providing that the uh, the dark symbol uh, clinging monkeys will allow you to without smiting you <laughs> with their satanic power. All right. On that note, we're going to take another break. But when we come back, we will discuss paper doll theaters and uh, some uh, cartoon transformations. All right. We're back. Okay. It seems like we're doing paper dolls now. Yeah, I, I wasn't really expecting to talk about paper dolls because I, I don't have a lot of nostalgia for them. Um, like some some toys, is, you know, they, they tend to have sort of gendered marketing, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think I was I was ever like they were never really marketed for me or purchased for me when I was a child. Uh-huh. Oh, I should have brought up that earlier. There's actually one one mention in uh, Hewitt's paper about blocks. How there's some egregiously gendered marketing in the oh. history of, of blocks, you know, like advertising blocks as for the boy constructor, uh. you know, which is just like obviously girls like playing with blocks too. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think gender targeting on toys tends to be a bit dumb, but especially with, with blocks. If there was ever a truly gender neutral toy, mm-hmm. blocks are it. Because it's not like physics is, you know, is it only works or the on other. boys. Yeah, it's like it's. <laughs> It's part of the the human experience. No, so don't you know when a girl makes a tower of things, it just can't fall over. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, with paper dolls, I don't have a lot of – I remember my sisters had them and I, and I think I would check them out from time to time. And they were neat, you know, especially when you get into costume changes on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I found a, a, an interesting write-up on paper doll theaters in particular, and so that's mainly what I want to talk about here. But but paper dolls in and of themselves, are, themselves can be pretty cool. Uh, and also if you expand that a little bit and think also of uh, things made out of cardboard, cardboard cutouts, uh, folded paper that is used to create some sort of likeness of a creature or a being. But of course, for to have these different types of toys, you have to have paper first. Right. Now, if paper itself has been with us for a long time, since at least the second century BCE in China, mm-hmm. spreading more broadly through the Middle East and Europe in the 13th century. And we'll have to come back and do a full invention episode just on paper itself because it has a fascinating history. Totally. But, but of course, it proved extremely important for the conveyance of written language. Uh, it, it also was something of, of value, treated as such. Uh, for instance, in Western traditions, we see, see it in the value of books, in the reuse of parchment. Oh, yeah. That's one thing that people often don't understand when dealing with, like, archaeology today. It's like, why do we have all these old documents where people would, like, write uh, something on top of something else that— it doesn't make any sense, but it does if you consider that writing media, the stuff you'd be writing on was like expensive and hard to come by. Yeah, I mean we live in a day of very disposable paper, a day when, for instance, my son can come in and just 
he, he can just go up to the printer, grab a, a stack of uh, blank sheets, and just start drawing dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the time was when that would be uh, completely uh, unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, paper is not a plaything. Paper, in some cases, paper was sacred. I mean, paper was used uh, in, in various, uh, you know, rituals and ceremonies. We see that in Eastern examples especially. Uh, and there, was, there was something sacred about it. It was a place where you, you put the written word, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, in the East, we see origami uh, arising, you know, a, an art form that is about creating uh, three-dimensional entities, humanoid or animal or otherwise, uh, out of paper. And these date back to a, a, around 800 CE. We also see traditions of paper puppetry in Asia, which also it resonates with the sacred because puppetry at heart is a kind of magic to imbue created likenesses with the animation of life and then, then to use these animations to tell stories. And so we come back to the idea of European paper dolls, which seem to have popped up in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, becoming basically widely more available and popular as paper itself became more affordable. Uh, because that's a key. For, for there to be you know, toys made out of paper and then for there to be widespread toys made out of paper, mm-hmm. you've got to get the, the price point down. Sure. So I was reading an article by Amelia Soth for JSTOR Daily titled Paper Theaters, the Home Entertainment of Yesteryear. Oh, boy. And it discussed, uh, you know, another detail of paper doll history that I I think I was largely unaware of. I'm pretty sure I'd seen some reprinted paper theaters at Atlanta's own uh, Center for Puppetry Arts. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really appreciate what I was looking at and and realized that this is essentially an an entire puppetry art form that was very popular at one point. Uh Uh-huh. So – Basically, during the 1800s, live theater was the was you know was was all the rage. It was extremely popular in Europe, especially in England. It was the TV of the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted if you wanted to see a story, if you wanted to watch your stories, you needed to go watch someone present them to you, right, uh-huh. on a stage. But you had to leave the house. <laughs> well, true, uh, and, and we'll get to a way around that. But but yeah, performance was huge. Soth writes uh, that um, that theater goers at the time rebelled against uh, Covent Garden Theater over high ticket prices by ringing bells during the show to disturb the actors and by bringing live pigs to the theater, <laughs> which is fabulous. This, this gives me some ideas I think that we can all use in dealing with, say, uh, the likes of Ticketmaster and so forth. You know? Okay. You don't like those high prices. You don't like those scalpers coming in. Ruin Just, it for everybody. Yeah. Bring, bring, a, <laughs> bring a live pig and some bells to the next concert. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you also had people attending unlicensed and illegal theaters that were uh, called blood tubs uh, to feed their need for live performance. People could not get enough of it. Wait, why were they called blood tubs? Do we have any idea? <laughs> I, th- I think they were just considered um, potentially dangerous and or oh, okay. violent. I mean, imagine going to an unlicensed uh, venue for – I'm thinking like a, you know, like a hard rock concert, punk okay. or metal, you yeah. know. And uh, some of the complications that could ensue. Yeah, those punk house shows can get kind of rough. <laughs> but then there was the the home version, uh, often for children, paper theaters, and you could at the time you could buy them colored or uncolored for um, a manner of sense, and then you could they would give you everything you needed for a for a stand up miniature performance. You'd have a stage, a set, characters striking dramatic poses, and you'd uh, you'd have to cut them out uh, and then stand them up. 
And of course, it would also come with a script, oftentimes oh. edited so that the child, you know, could handle it. If there was something, you know, body in there, it would be removed. Amazing. So, like, instead of going to the store and like buying a DVD, mm-hmm. you could you'd buy a set to do a paper puppet play that comes with a script that tells you what to do. Yeah, which which is amazing. Especially again, think of a time when you didn't have DVDs, you didn't have VHS, mm-hmm. you you weren't able to just catch the movie again on uh, television. Uh, later, uh, this might be the way to to re-experience it, right? Uh, in a way, it's very much like the like a novelization of a film, uh, except uh, more physical. And requiring your direct interaction to put on the performance. Yeah. And so they were very popular. Uh, and according to Soth, they likely led to imagination play as well, much like Legos in this regard, I'd wager. You know, run, mm. it, one, run it through once maybe with the script, and then maybe you do a sequel to, uh, I don't know, Much Ado About Nothing. Much Ado About Nothing 2, The Revenge. <laughs> right. Yeah, first, uh, first is tragedy and then is comedy. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the price, by the way, uh, uh, you know, manner of, of sense, it's actually referenced in the title of a Robert Louis Stevenson essay about their appeal, where he's kind of you know, waxing nostalgic about his, uh, his love of these when he was a child. It's called Penny Plain, Two Pence Colored, because the, uh, the, the, the plain version of everything uh, was cheaper, and if you got it already colored in, you'd have to pay a little bit more. Oh, Okay. Uh, Stevenson, I was looking at this original piece. I looked it up. It's available online if you just do a search for that title and Robert Louis Stevenson. He writes about the joy of coloring the pages himself, uh, that sometimes he would get the the, the colored version uh, for the extra scent, but it would just – it would feel wrong. He would feel like he was cheating. Uh, and he would, uh, you know, he'd stage a performance uh, w- with the, uh, the the paper uh, figures, uh, but then he would end up studying the contents of the script booklet a lot, uh, mm-hmm. obsessively, and, uh, and and his parents would not necessarily understand like why he wasn't playing with it anymore. And he's like, oh, I've, it's like a big meal that I've consumed. I've already consumed <laughs> it. I can't I can't do it again, mom and dad. You don't understand the 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 level of energy I'm putting into this uh, this paper theater. Wow. Uh, Soth also points out that um, Gotha's son, August, would put uh, on shows in a paper theater and that, quote, the family cat always served as one of the performers. (laughs) Oh, like getting in there and swatting at the puppets, I'm sure. They would love that. So Soth concludes, quote, the magic of the paper theater was not that it allowed children to replicate a beloved play in their home. It was that it provided them with the raw materials either to copy or create, to follow or subvert as they saw fit. So it gave children a full cast and setting of physical representations for imagination play. And in some cases, I imagine, uh, you know, it, it made you know, an, or such an array possible, given that some children, uh, you know, many children even, would not have had access to, say, a Toy Story 4-esque cast of material characters. You wouldn't uh-huh. have like a toy chest of animals and people, representations thereof, with which to do this kind of imagination play. But one of these sets, for a mere penny, you would have good guys and bad guys in a setting, everything you need. And the script. I mean, and that, the script, that, that yeah. seems like a huge part of it. I mean, I think about how actually uh, this is seeming so weird to me, but at the same time, I'm like, well, that's sort of what I did with my action figures. Like, I'd you know, when I played with like Jurassic Park action figures or whatever, I could like have them sort of put on a play. Yeah. Uh, another thing uh, that I read was that um, people like uh, Igmar Bergman and Orson Welles would use toy theaters to stage things out uh, in miniature 
uh, for actual per, for actual performances or productions. Mm-hmm. So you know this in and of itself too, it's just a useful exercise to be able to create in miniature what you may one day create in real life as a as an actual say theatrical production or a cinematic production. Um, yeah, th- these were these were super popular for uh, for quite a while. Now, among other things, television helped to uh, d- decrease the appeal of these paper theaters and toy mm-hmm. theaters in general. But they live on to this day, uh, sometimes in a nostalgic form, an old toy kind of form. But then you also see them utilized uh, as a as a true craft by some individuals, or even as a performance art, even as a a, a way of performing through a type of puppetry. I feel like I want to get one of these things. Yeah, I, I again, I, I have seen them for sale, or rep, yeah, I've seen updated versions of them for sale at, say, the Center for Puppetry Arts. So uh, next time I, I go, I'm gonna have to check it out. Maybe they make a Jurassic Park paper puppet set. It would be great, actually. You know, because uh, just think of it. Instead of buying all these big pieces of plastic or building them out of Legos or what have you, uh-huh. uh, and then building things for the dinosaurs to knock down out of bricks and blocks, what have you. In paper form, you could have everything. You could have all the major dinosaurs, all the major players. You could even have uh, who's the lawyer in the first Jurassic Park? Uh, Gennaro, or th- what the actor's name? Well, I don't know about the, either one. You could have that guy, and you could even rip him in half. He even comes into two pieces. Oh, that's you know? right. Yeah, yeah, very easy to dismember paper yeah. puppets. There you go. Uh, you know what I'd do? What's that? Flip the script. Then you have dinosaurs make a park with humans in it. The humans get loose. There you go. See, it, this is exactly it. Like it allows you to to make all the changes, all the alterations that you you might be inspired to to, to create. Now, Robert, you promised me that we would end up talking about some kind of cartoon transformation. What's the deal here? All right. Yeah. I have one final thing that you had to talk about here. And it's something that I, I never thought that I would would really come up on the show. I'm going to uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to list several different Japanese cartoon characters made, that were indeed each of them made into some sort of toy. And I want you to figure out what they have in common. Okay. You have Mumra the Ever-Living from Thundercats. You remember Mumra? I actually never watched what? Thundercats. Okay. So Mumra is like an old, decrepit mummy, like kind of a cat person mummy. Okay. Uh, and then at, at a certain point in the show, he's going to have to battle. So he has to transform into Mumra the Ever-Living, which is this big, like super muscular cat creature with like sort of Thulsa Doom-esque Egyptian-inspired garb. It's like in the Stephen Summers m- mummy movies when uh, the, the, the skeleton critter turns into Arnold Vosloo. Yeah, very similar. I, I imagine they might have even been inspired by old Mumra. <laughs> Another example, Monstar, uh, Silverhawks. This was a villain in a – it was a, a sci-fi sort of counterpart to Thundercats. Then, of course, we had Voltron. You remember Voltron? Oh, I definitely remember Voltron. Mm-hmm. And then you had Sailor Moon. Uh, aware of it, but I never watched it. Okay. So what do they all have in common? Well, I know the answer because I can see your notes, but I haven't – I don't know if I would have gotten it otherwise – Clearly, now that I know the answer, it's that they all have like a scene where they go like, power up, and then they transform into their their higher form. That's right. Yeah, lengthy transformation scenes. Uh, and it, uh, again, I, I was not familiar with all of these properties. I don't think I've ever watched Sailor Moon, and probably you know that gets into uh, gendered marketing, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I was a big Thundercats and Voltron fan growing up. I would catch Silverhawks when it was on. I always found it like a little weird. It was it was it was didn't have the true magic of Thundercats. Uh-huh. Uh, but but these were fun shows. And yes, the transformation scenes were awesome. 
and they sometimes would uh, would use like a full transformation. Sometimes they would use a shorter version of it, seemingly uh, depending on how much uh, you know how much they had to pad out the episode, right? <laughs> because because that really seems seem to have been key here, right? Because it's a great way to pad out an animated series, especially when you consider a show like Thundercats, which went four seasons, one hundred and thirty episodes. Uh, Silverhawks only went one season, and it still had 65 episodes. So they're really churning these puppies out. Yeah, but you film a transformation scene, you can basically just use the same one every time. Right. You can bank, uh, like generally, most of these we're looking at, you're talking 20 seconds, mm-hmm. which you know maybe doesn't seem about a lot, when you, but when you get into the cost of animation, et cetera, uh, it, it makes a difference. It's, a, it's called the, the bank method, apparently. Uh, by the way, Sailor Moon, five seasons, 200 episodes. Wow. So yes, on one hand, you can look at it and say, well, this is a good way to, to, f- to fill up an episode. Just have, have 20 seconds or so that you can depend on, not counting the intro and the outro to the episode, which are already going to be pretty stationary. I was looking at JSTOR Daily again, and I ran across a post titled, Selling Toys with the Sailor Moon Transformation Sequence. <laughs> and this was very insightful and made me think about this in a new way. This was by uh, Jacqueline Mansky in uh, October of 2019, and it was largely uh, a look at the work of Komiko Saito in the Journal of Asian Studies. Okay. The, the, uh, the, so this all points out that the transformation scenes, like the, the ones we've discussed, but more specifically like the one in Sailor Moon, uh, are, are more than we, we might imagine they are. So in Sailor Moon, we have a normal Japanese schoolgirl girl, and she transforms into the pretty guardian Sailor Moon. The pretty guardian. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, apparently this was like a standard part of magical girl animation prior to to Sailor Moon, and one presumes that, you know, it connects to the transformations in the Thundercats and Voltron shows. Uh-huh. Uh, again, just sort of like a differently gendered version of the same thing. Uh-huh. Uh, it dates back at least to the 1982 animated series Minky Momo, which was a magical princess show that featured a standard 23-second transformation scene. By the time Sailor Moon comes around, though, they get that transformation scene up to 40 seconds. Wow. Well, this is interesting that you've got this, you know, animation production padding technique that is being used over and over in all these different series to make the cartoon production more affordable. But how does this connect to toys? All right. This is what uh, uh, Saito has to write about it. She says, quote, although the technique of reusing cells in multiple episodes was not a new concept in itself, Momo, by which she means Minky Momo from 82, successfully incorporated the well-exploited robot anime's bank method in which mechanical parts are captured in the camera's dynamic tracking motion for the maximum effect of promoting the target merchandise. So in other words, if I'm understanding this correctly, it's uh, you, you ever see these scenes where it's like the showroom for an automobile? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. It's on this uh, circular stage that's revolving and all the fancy lights are, are on it to just give you this 360 fabulous, uh, you know, nonstop view of just how wonderful this vehicle is from every angle. Uh-huh. It's like the character creation screen in a wrestling video game. Exactly. You know, where they yeah. let you rotate to every angle, you know, inspect the feet, all, all that stuff. Right. So, uh, yeah, if I'm understanding this correctly, the argument is that that is what this is. Like, yes, it's a, oh. it's a banking method. Yes, it's a, it's part of each story. There, it's part of the imaginative element of the, of the tale. Uh-huh. But so, like, you're trying to sell 
Voltron action figures or mm-hmm. Sailor Moon action figures. And this allows you to do that within every episode of the show to have like a merchandise show off segment that gives you lots of different angles and stuff to examine the toy that you want to buy. Yeah. So Mumra does his 20 second transformation scene. Uh, I think I, I tried to clock it. I think it's like 23 seconds. Uh, and uh, and you look at it and you're like, man, Mumra's amazing. This, this, the central <laughs> villain of the show is the best. And I simply must own the toy. And I did own the toy of Mumra. Like I remember I, I, I didn't connect the two, but it's like I had to have Mumra. I had Mumra. I had none of the other Thundercats. Uh, but I had to have Mumra. And I probably would have gotten Mon- uh, Monstar as well, but I couldn't really move my eight-year-old uh, funds around enough to make it happen. <laughs> uh, but but this is a— Couldn't get a, an injection of capital for that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but but I think this is a, a really fascinating take on, on, on it. I mean, obviously we know that if there is a cartoon that has a toy line, yeah. and sometimes the, the cartoon comes first, sometimes the toy line comes first, sometimes they're part of the same effort— you know, uh, we know on some level that that cartoon is is about selling the toys. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's totally the case with, like, Transformers, mm-hmm. right? The cartoon was there to sell the toys. But I, I had not really considered something about the transformation scene, about how this this might be a key uh, tool in the toy makers, the toy marketers' toolbox. Well, that's funny because now that I'm thinking of Transformers, of course, duh. I mean, also extended transformation scenes. Yeah, yeah you see this – once you, you sort of uh, – clued in to this idea, you see it in so many shows. Yeah, Transformers, um, even some shows that are perhaps, you know, not cartoons. I, I guess in Power Rangers, stuff had to come together. Some sort of transformation had to happen. Uh-huh. It becomes – and part of this too is that it becomes a trope of such shows, right? It becomes right. A, a thing that people expect and they get excited about. And maybe to a certain extent, the creators don't even realize the ways that it can be used, that it has this, this, uh, this marketing effect as well. Yeah, this is really interesting. I've never considered this before. <laughs> now, again, I, I only have personal experience with, uh, with Mumra and Monstar and Voltron, but oh. I would love to hear from anyone out there who can really speak to Sailor Moon mm-hmm. and some of these other Princess Transformation shows and, uh, and, and provide a little insight on this. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I actually have come across other examples of this where, like, specifically cin- uh, like cinema techniques being used to emphasize toy selling aspects. The main example I'm thinking of are in uh, Batman movies, mm-hmm. like in the uh, in the second Joel Schumacher Batman movie, Batman and Robin from, I guess it was the late 90s. Oh, yeah. I remember there, there was all this talk after the film came out about how, like, the film had been shaped by the need to market toys that would be sold in conjunction with the film. Uh, so, like, uh, you know, to, to emphasize uh, the bat vehicles and stuff in certain ways that would make it, they thought, more appealing for a toy market, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I I don't know if I ever saw that one all the way through, but but even the earlier Batman movies. I mean, clearly you got to move some Batmobiles, and so you feature the Batmobile prominently. But then again, would it be a Batman film if it didn't have a Batmobile in it? It becomes kind of hard to uh, you know to, to pull these elements apart again, right? I've been trying to think of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger Price ice pun. It did, it didn't didn't come together right. Uh, it was such hilarious uh, and awful casting as uh, as as Mister Freeze. It's one yeah. of the all time greats. Yeah, because yeah. I remember even at the time I I was already I was always a Mister Freeze fan. Uh-huh. Even like the really crappy Mister Freeze uh, that you version that you had in the old uh, Adam West 
series, I was still I would still get oh. excited for him when he was on the screen. Oh, I didn't know that. I remember he was always so scary and tragic in the animated series. Yeah, he's wonderful in the animated series. I, I fell in love with him again, uh, fell in love with him anew when when that came out. And then here comes Arnold, and mm-hmm. you're like, who did this? Like, who so completely missed, uh, you know, missed the mark on what this character is and what they should be cinematically? Uh, but they sold a lot of toys, though. That's true. And, and it is at least comedically uh, noteworthy. All right, so there you have it. Uh, I think this is good. I think we're going to close the toy bag for the year. It's been a heck of a haul. It has. Obviously, there were tons of toys we did not get to, uh, but we can always come back in the future, especially if these are popular. And then, of course, uh, you know we're going to cover more invent- inventions in the new year. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. What do you want to hear about? What technologies? What specific inventions? Big inventions? Small inventions? Uh, really, I would love to hear from everyone regarding like what you like about the show. If you if you like invention, if you want invention to keep going. What sort of topics and content are are you finding the most engaging? Do you like multi-episodes that deal with something bigger like photography? Do you like self-contained episodes that are looking at a singular invention? Do you like grab bag episodes like these toy episodes? I would just love to know what you think as a listener. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes, uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can go to inventionpod.com, and that'll take you to our to a page for us. And, uh, yeah, wherever you get the show, just make sure you rate and review. That is a great way to support the show. Also, subscribe. That way you'll always get new episodes when they arrive. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.